Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional sport water bottle, and that steamy bee treat. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut. To explore the bounds of your pleasure, new content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. Should we all just delete Facebook? We discussed the recent revelations about Facebook, Cambridge Analytica, and the 2016 election. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsu Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We are back and had a great time at Ripon College in Wisconsin. We will be posting the keynote address we gave at the college later this week. We had such a wonderful time with all the students there. And I had some like really incredible insights, including about Facebook that I can't wait to share later in the show and later this week. We also want to ask if you are interested in signing up for the Pantsuit Politics weekly email. There'll be some exciting changes coming soon. We're going to start including some little free quotes, free presents, free maybe phone screens. We got plans. So you can go to pantsuitpoliticsshow.com and sign up for our weekly email there. We are going to work our way backwards through the news-heavy weekend, including Stormy Daniels' interview, the March for Our Lives, and the budget. Before Beth shares her Women's History Month Minute in the main segment of the show, we're going to talk about Facebook before sharing what's on our mind outside politics. Beth, did you watch Stormy Daniels' interview last night? I did watch Stormy Daniels' interview. I couldn't help myself. I have this whole debate with myself about whether to watch it or not. And then I watched it and was so glad that I did because I thought it was not only newsworthy, legitimately newsworthy, but also I was very impressed with her. I was too. I watched it with my mother and my grandmother and my husband. First of all, I miss communal watching experiences. That's the first thing. So I was all about like sitting down with the rest of America to hear this woman's story. I like that feel. I was so impressed with her. I thought she, when she really won me over is when she looked at Anderson Cooper and said, you didn't even buy me breakfast. It was amazing. (laughs) She was arguing like, I'm not doing this for the money. I'm doing this because they're lying about me and they're calling me a liar. I thought two of the most impactful news aspects of her story were the fact that she was threatened. That story about the man coming up to her when she was with her child was 
terrifying. And I didn't realize there was all these campaign finance implications of the hush money. So I'm here for all of it. I like Stormy Daniels. I thought she was funny and believable. The part about her saying she felt like she had to have sex with him made me super sad. But overall, I thought she did a great job. And I think her and her lawyer are pretty masterful at keeping this story going and playing Donald Trump in his own game. And I'm here for it. I agree with that. But as a representative of the legal profession, feels kind of gross to me. Oh, I don't know. I was prepared not to like him, but then he got on that like sort of bit where he was preaching. And I was like, you know what? Testify, brother. I'm here for you. And when he was like, you know what it sounds like to me? It sounds righteous. I was like, I'm not mad at you. I thought I was fully prepared not to like him, but he kind of won me over too. I'm not even trying to lie, but I'm, you know, I'm always here for righteous anger. So I'm probably not representative of the American public. Perhaps I have spent too much time immersed in lawyer culture I did not find any of that believable from him. But I, <laughs> I don't completely know. I kind of found her it. credible. Yeah, I thought she was so... Well, and here's the other thing. This is what really bothers me. The conversations I seem to have about Stormy Daniels. Let me just get this off my chest. The who cares? Well, I should hope who cares are the exact same people who cared about Bill Clinton and his infidelity. And if you didn't care about that, you should definitely care about the seeming violation of our campaign finance laws because no one is above the law, whether they're running for president or the president. The willingness of everyone, and I don't know if it's just out of exhaustion to blow this off is kind of bugging me, but I thought she did a good job of fighting back against that as hard as she could, especially with the stories of the threatening and the bullying. I find the who cares narrative really exhausting, especially from journalists who are trying to walk the line between being immersed in some kind of tabloid story and doing, quote, serious news. To me, it's really degrading. I think we would be talking about this entire story differently if Stormy Daniels were an accountant or a software engineer or a first grade mm. teacher. So I think we are degrading her profession in assessing the newsworthiness of the story. I also think that the morality angle isn't the point. I don't care about him having an affair. Because everyone's marriage is different. I don't know what he and Melania have agreed to in their lives, and I'm not going to judge that. So I don't care about that part. But I very much care about his use of power over mm. and over against women. This doesn't exist in a vacuum. Stormy Daniels is not the first woman that Trump has. I mean, by her own description, he was dangling the opportunity to appear on The Apprentice Ugh, over her head. So brutal. He brought her into his hotel room and she was not attracted to him and felt like she had put herself in a position where he developed an expectation and she owed him the fulfillment of that expectation. There is a lot of connection to Me Too here that we, I think, are missing because she does porn. And I don't like porn and I don't want to be like advocating for porn. But I think that it's wrong the way we're talking about this woman. And I do think that she did a good job of saying, listen, I could have made a whole lot more money than $130,000 mm -hmm. if I had told this story. Silencing it made sense to me. Yeah. You know, she seems smart. She definitely could see the writing on the wall of how she would get treated by his supporters. The stories of people going after Trump critics were pretty well-versed and I think in the sort of public sphere by this point in the election. You know what really bothers me about the whole like extramarital affair though is how he, everybody remember how he brought Juanita Broderick and all these women who'd had differing levels of sexual interactions with Bill Clinton, including accusations of rape. I don't want to downplay those at the debate. So I think he would have definitely lost any remaining credibility he had, which I don't think he did. I mean, I think everybody knew he was a hypocrite. I think there must be more to the story, like Anderson Cooper said, because I don't know otherwise why they were so interested in silencing it, unless they just thought at this point in the election, it would be too much on top of the excess Hollywood tape. But I do agree that the way she talked about it was very disheartening. To me, her insistence the thread I saw was her insistence that she was not a victim, that it was consensual, but then the way she phrased that sexual encounter, I think probably speaks to, you know, not to be a pop psychologist, but to speaks to her sort of internal narrative about her work as in adult films and that she's choosing this. And even if she doesn't want to have sex with this person, it's her choice. And that's to me is what that was reflective of. But it doesn't make it any less sad. And it doesn't make it any less fortunate that a woman would sit on national TV and say, I was not attracted to this person. I didn't want to have sex with them, but I felt like I had to. 
Well, it ties so clearly to me to the story about Aziz Ansari that we've discussed so much Mm -hmm. and the reaction to that story. So you could say that maybe an adult film star has a, a particular sensibility about this kind of thing. But you saw from women in the reaction to the Aziz Ansari conversation a sense that when you set an expectation, you have put yourself in a position. Those words Mm -hmm. were used about grace in that story, right? She put herself in this position. So I think there is something much bigger to talk about. And I wonder, I think Anderson Cooper is great at his job. I wonder what it would have been like if a woman had been interviewing her and how much she would have pursued that portion of the conversation as opposed to just hearing that very sad line and then moving on from it. There seems to be a narrative we are all adopting that Donald Trump is impervious to accusations, law-breaking. I just desperately hope that we let go of that. I hear that from liberal and progressive people. Just like he, he's going to get away with it. What does it matter? No one's going to care. I just really want us to stop talking like that. What she said, what she is accusing him of, is incredibly important. And the rule of law applies, whether you're president or not. And whether he threatened her or bullied her or had illegal campaign donations used to hush her, this is important, and he should be held accountable for that, just as much as he should be accountable for anything that Robert Mueller turns up in his investigation. I'm tired of talking about this man as if the rules don't apply to him. Well, and as if you can litigate your way out of any one single occurrence with him to prove that overall his character is just fine. Mm -hmm. That's what this story is about to me. The character of the person who sits in the Oval Office right now and the character of the people he surrounds himself with and the way he uses those people and the way they view their loyalty to him as something that transcends normal ethics When the lawyer for Stormy Daniels said normal people don't act this way, normal lawyers don't say to Vanity Fair, I'm going to take an extended vacation on her dime once we sue her for all this money for violations of this NDA. Normal people don't do that. And I was sitting next to Chad and he said, yeah, I think some of them do. And I said, you know what? Normal people who represent the president of the United States don't talk like that. There Mm -hmm. might be a sense of used car salesmanship across the United States, but at some point, don't we expect better than that? And that, to me, is what this story is about. It is one data point in an increasingly large set of data points indicating that the president has a mafia-style approach to both the people he uses as his support staff and the way he interacts with anybody he views as an adversary. It's unacceptable. And I wish we would just start talking about it like that. Well, moving on from Stormy Daniels to something a little bit more hopeful. We wanted to talk about the March for Our Lives that happened this weekend. I caught some of this on the radio as I was driving home from the airport. Sarah, were you able to watch it? We were both in transit. Yeah, I was only able to watch most of it afterwards. I watched Emma Gonzalez's amazingly powerful six minutes of silence. Did you get to see that? I did. Oh, my gosh. I don't know how she did it. That's like such an incredibly difficult thing to do, to stand there In silence in front of a crowd that size, I just, she never ceases to amaze me, that one. These kids are very poised. I thought they did a fantastic job. I thought the attendance was amazing and exceeded Mm -hmm. my expectations, and I had pretty high ones. It was overall, I think, a really well-done event, and I hope that it was effective. Well, we have kids from our church going, so I can't wait to hear firsthand what it was like to be there. The other moment that got a lot of press that I watched this morning and just cried all the way through was Naomi Wadler. Her speech, this little girl is 11 years old. She stood up. She started talking about why people should listen to her and why they should listen to her friends who organized a walkout and how she was there for every, oh, I'm going to cry now just thinking about it, nameless, faceless woman or girl of color who has lost their lives, disproportionate numbers to gun violence. Mm, that little girl. I can't. I don't even know where to start with her. I just hope that her and her family have somehow been adopted by Oprah. She's apprenticing under Oprah somehow. I'm ready. I'm ready for Oprah to pass her crown to this little girl. Like I thought she was so, so amazing. 
They've done an excellent job of making this not just about school violence, but about gun violence in general and about Mm -hmm. gun violence in non-white communities and bringing attention to the issue in a more holistic way than they could have. And I think that they are to be committed for that. I don't know who all is advising them, but if these students are dealing with this kind of complex political and PR strategy on their own, I mean, these kids are going to make all the money eventually. Watch out. And also, can I just go back to Naomi because I loved her so much? There was a moment where she was basically like, people are saying we're too young or that we're just puppets of our parents. And the face that she <laughs> paused and gave, mm, it spoke to my heart. It was so, she conveyed so much. And that one look like, how dare you imply that I'm not speaking for myself? Mm. I was here for it. Again, adults, be quiet and listen to these kids. Even if they don't get every policy detail right, when our children are saying to us, begging us, please keep my school safe, please don't make me bury my friends again, we need to be quiet and listen and respect that and then come to the table with our part of it. Here are the policy nuances that I think we need to consider. They're just asking for something to be done. Mm-hmm. Well, here's my thing. What I don't really understand is how we have completely and totally shifted the way we parent and the way we talk about kids, the way we think about kids. But the second they open their mouths and try to do something like this, especially political, all of a sudden we're like back in the Victorian ages and kids are to be seen, not heard. Like, what what is this time machine about? I mean, what it tells me is that all these changes in the way we parent are really about us and not really about the kids or changing ideas about kids. It's about making ourselves feel better because the second they question us or ask for something more than we're willing to give, oh, then all of a sudden they're kids and they're dumb and they need to be seen and not heard. And that to me is speaks to some really disjointed ideas we have about children and about parenting and just about politics and democracy in general. I think that we treat our kids like accessories. Mm-hmm. And when it suits us to say that we have these highly empowered successories, we do that. And when it suits us to say that they're super independent because we want to be living our lives to the fullest, we do that. And then when it is inconvenient because it is challenging or hurtful or shameful for some of us, I think some of what these children are saying, it makes me feel ashamed and it should. Then we don't want them to be accessories anymore. But I don't think anything in modern parenting is about recognizing the humanity and personhood of your children. I just don't Mm -hmm. think that it is. And I think we have some soul searching to do about that. So true. We're going to talk more about March for Our Lives. Our friend and favorite, Dr. Dana Fisher, who collects data on protest, was there at March for Our Lives collecting information. Once she has had a chance to analyze that information fully, we will have her back on the show. And we are really excited about giving you more information about who was there and what might come of it. So as if Stormy Daniels, Stormy Daniels Day, as they were calling it on Twitter, and the March for Our Lives was not enough. Congress managed to pass a budget. I'm so proud of them. Yeah, it's a... (laughs) I don't know what to say about this budget. I'm happy we have one. Yeah, they did something they're supposed to. Now, apparently, it's the only thing they're going to do for the rest of the year. But listen, I'm just trying to find something positive. I think there's actually a lot positive in this budget. I'm not going to lie. Our standards are so low, though, you know, because they mostly didn't read it. It was passed in a hurry. They had to pretend that money grows on trees in order to get this done. I don't mean to be a buzzkill about it. It's just like hard for me to be all excited. But hey, I am excited that the government is functioning. It is funded and we can all move on from here. And I'm just excited because in the reality of choice between Donald Trump's budget and the budget passed, DEF going for the budget passed, they did some good things. They doubled the CDBG, the Community Development Block Grant Program, which my community personally has benefited from several times. It's a really great program. So they didn't cut Elmo. All kinds of positive things. I mean, I guess the reason I liked it so much as in because so much of the narrative surrounding Donald Trump's budget and spending generally exist in a very partisan, nasty, punditry-filled slash fueled space. And this just looked like what it's like to actually have a government doing what a government's supposed to do. Yes, I agree. We're spending too much money. But I don't know. I would take that as, like I said, in the alternative of like the Donald Trump budget. That's not really about the government functioning. That's just about like giving your base wins. I prefer this. Agreed. 
For sure. And I'm happy that NASA got so much funding. I'm happy that there's more funding for opioid addiction. I read that the word opioid appeared 24 times in the context of this budget. That's clearly on everyone's minds. I I agree that there are some good things in here. There are things in here that no one will like as well. I think this is a testament to the power of inertia in a lot of ways. Given that we are in an election year, nobody wanted to have a shutdown. It was kind of like, what what are we doing today? Let's just mm-hmm. keep doing all of it. Let's keep doing all of it and let's put in enough for border security, enough for the military that the president will go along. So we're ready to move on to Beth's Women's History Month Minute. Friendly reminder, there will be extended versions of our Women's History Month Minute on Patreon. If you're interested in any of the women we've talked about on the show, you can hear more about their lives by becoming a supporter of Pansy Politics at patreon.com forward slash Pansy Politics. I want to talk about Barbara Jordan today. Barbara Jordan was the first woman elected elected to the Texas Senate. She was the first black woman to come from the Deep South to be elected to Congress. In 1956, she graduated from Texas Southern University and went to Boston University Law School. After law school, she came home to Texas and started practicing law out of her parents' home. She got excited about politics and campaigned for JFK very early after law school, and she ran for office in 1962. I really want to emphasize this point. Barbara Jordan, who goes on to become amazing, as you'll hear about, ran for office and lost twice before she won. I think that that is such a testament to keep going. And a lot of Barbara Jordan's life looks like that. But she lost twice. Then she was elected to the Texas state legislature in 1972, 10 years after her first run for public office. She was elected to the House of Representatives and she gained national prominence really quickly because she was on the House Judiciary Committee during Watergate. And she gave an incredible speech that the president took note of, that the country took note of. And in 1976, she gave another incredible speech as the keynote speaker at the Democratic National Convention. She was the first black woman to give the keynote at the DNC. And I'm going to share more of the text of those speeches and hopefully some clips of actual sound from her on Patreon because this woman was really a talent. Everything I've ever read about Barbara Jordan is that she was not to be messed with either. That's I've read a lot of Anne Richards' biography and Bill Clinton talks about her. And both of them, complimentary doesn't quite do justice to how people talk about Barbara Jordan. I think she was a force of nature, really. And that's why when she retired from Congress in 1979, a lot of people were disappointed because they thought that her career in public service could go a lot further. But later they learned that she had been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and her health was really starting to become difficult for her. So after she was out of Congress, she focused on education. She became an advisor to Ann Richards, as you just mentioned, and Bill Clinton. I'm going to share on Patreon. She chaired the Commission for Immigration Reform under President Clinton, and her philosophy about immigration is really interesting. I'm going to apologize in advance for getting a little wonky in that discussion, but there is a a lot of information available available about her views on immigration that I think are very relevant. So I'm going to get into that in the Patreon bonus. President Clinton awarded her the Presidential Medal of Freedom. It's been reported that he would have put her on the Supreme Court had her health allowed it. In 1992, from a wheelchair, she again addressed the DNC and was as powerful a speaker then as earlier in her career. She died in 1996 from pneumonia, which she suffered while battling leukemia. Barbara Jordan was very private about her personal life and never confirmed her sexuality publicly, but for almost 30 years, she lived with Nancy Earle, an educational psychologist that she met on a camping trip in the late 1960s. Nancy Earle occasionally helped write Barbara Jordan's speeches, and she was her primary caretaker when her health started to take a major toll on her. And it just kind of makes me sad to read about how public their relationship was until she ran for public office. She lost twice, as I mentioned earlier, and advisors to her recommended that she really downplay that aspect of her life. So there are so many biographies of Barbara Jordan written without any reference to Nancy Earle, and and I really hate that for both of them. I wanted to end this Women's History Month Minute by sharing a little bit from her obituary that appeared in the New York Times when she died in 1996. 
even amid the political turmoil of 1974, when Congresswoman Jordan contended that the Watergate conspirings had put the nation, quote, on the edge of repression and tyranny, the outspoken Texan still led with her optimism. During that summer of the Watergate crisis, she took care to visit the graduates of Howard University and urge them, reaffirm what ought to be. Get back to the truth. That's old, but get back to it. Get back to what's honest. Tell government to do that. Affirm the civil liberties of the people of this country. Do that. So I will tell you more about Barbara Jordan on Patreon, and I think that she is an amazing way to close out our Women's History Month. Next up, we are going to talk about Facebook. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional sport water bottle, and that steamy beach read. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut. To explore the bounds of your pleasure, new content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year is going by so quickly, and I had a little bit of a moment of panic about it this week. I thought to myself, I'm losing track of time. It's going so fast. It's going to be December before I know it. My kids are growing up, and I just kind of was spinning out. And I stopped, and I closed my eyes, and I pictured my last therapist, who I haven't seen since the end of 2020. But I remember the way he talked to me through these issues, and I sort of channeled his energy I put my feet on the ground and thought, this is just how time feels now. And there's nothing wrong with that or right about it. It just is. But those skills that I learned in therapy are so important to helping me take a second to celebrate what's going right and decide what I want to adjust for the rest of the year. If you're thinking of starting therapy, which I cannot recommend enough, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Pantsuit. The second most stressful thing after planning a trip is packing for it. This is true. This is a true story. I have just told you the clothes I have don't fit. They don't go together the way I want them to or I'm missing some essential piece. And then I discovered Quince. It's my go-to for high-quality vacation essentials. Like this premium European linen dress that's going to get us all through the heat wherever we're traveling. Blouses and shorts from $30. Washable silk tops. Premium luggage options and so much more. All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than their similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to all of us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I got big plans for my Quince chiffon pleated skirt in Japan. They like a loose, flowy look over there to battle the heat. I will be adopting that strategy with that skirt. Pack your bags with high quality essentials from Quince. Go to quince.com slash pantsuit for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash pantsuit to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash pantsuit. know from the reporting in the New York Times and through The Guardian, Facebook has had a week. Well, at least I guess probably two weeks. 
So this all began with Christopher Wiley, a former employee of Cambridge Analytica, who went to the Observer to tell sort of the inside story of some of what happened at Cambridge Analytica. Through this reporting, we highly recommend you check out the full reports, especially the video, which we'll talk about in a minute, the sort of behind-the-scenes undercover video of some of the heads of Cambridge Analytica. We have learned that Cambridge Analytica had access to over 50 million people's Facebook data. So let's back up a little bit. This all started with Alexander Kogan, who was a a Russian researcher who created a personality quiz app that not only took users' data, but the data of their friends. Now, at the time that he did this, that he was doing this quote-unquote research work, it was not a violation of Facebook's terms and agreements. You could take that data. For example, as many people have pointed out, the Obama campaign used a similar app that also took friends list and sort of related data, but they were very transparent about it. You had to click a box to do it. Because at the time, any app that wanted to use Facebook's data could access it in that way. It was sort of the, it was sort of the Wild West. Facebook gave a lot of access to people using Facebook to build these apps. And so when we're talking about apps, I just want to clarify this. So when you go in, when you download, let's say, an app to your phone, or often you'll access a website and they'll say, do you want to sign in using Facebook? Which I used to always do because it's hella easy. And you open up a little box in Facebook and you will give them permission. So that's a Facebook app that is accessing the Facebook platform. It's gathering your email address, your location, your birthday, a long list of other segments of data to help build their app. This was sort of a cohesive relationship between the app builders and Facebook. So he uses this personality test. And because he accessed the friends list as well, he gets and the friends data, he gets this incredible database of over 50 million Facebook users. Now, What he did do, which was a violation of the terms, was sell the data to Cambridge Analytica. Back in 2015, a Guardian story broke that this had happened, that they'd violated the terms and that Cambridge Analytica had accessed this data. Now, Facebook secured written assertions from Cambridge Analytica, from the researcher, and from some other employees that the data had been deleted. Spoiler alert, it had not been deleted. And so with these new investigations and with increasing understanding that Facebook knew the data had been deleted. There's a lot of question of like, why did Facebook not decide to do an audit? I mean, to me, I kind of get why Facebook didn't do the audit because these people could have definitely been like, yes, look at our server. It's deleted and had it on a hard drive shoved somewhere and nobody would have been the wiser. It would have been time consuming. It would have required a court order, but they didn't do it. And they're getting blamed for that now. I think that Facebook thought this was sort of going to blow over. But it just kept getting worse. Like we said, Channel 4 from Britain had some undercover video with the company's chief executive, Alexander Nix, which is mind-blowing, where he basically says, like, we'll get some Ukrainian women, and we'll trick politicians into these terrible positions, and then we can use it to win elections. It's bananas. Well, not to interrupt your flow, Sarah, but what's so compelling about that video is it shows that these companies aren't just gathering and using data. They're also creating content Mm -hmm. to put out into the channels. They figured out that if something looks like propaganda, we keep scrolling past it. But But they learned very quickly that if they created actual propaganda, and then just kind of drip, drip, dripped it into the internet, it would take on a life of its own and people wouldn't recognize it as propaganda. So there's a lot of really great think pieces out there. And we wanted to talk and think ourselves through what this story means, what our participation in Facebook needs. I read a really great quote and it was talking about user data. And I think that we're all sort of coming to Jesus, that user data is really the foundation of the internet. It is currency is no longer money. Currency is data. Whose data can you access? What does that data buy you? What kind of insight does that data buy you? And while we were in Wisconsin, we got in a conversation with a couple people and that the comments were like, well, that's great. I just, I want better products showing up. I, I want them to shop for me. But I hope what this story illustrates is that this is no longer about getting personally selected products in your Facebook feed. I think we all understand that Facebook is providing a product. And I think there was an understanding, at least I can speak for myself, that I'm willing to give you some of my data, a.k.a. some of my privacy in exchange for you making money and providing this platform that I really enjoy using. But what we're realizing, as with everything in technology, is just because the platform has good intentions Some people would argue Mark Zuckerberg doesn't have good intentions, but whatever. 
that it goes beyond, way beyond advertising and products, and that we're seeing the implications of this sort of psychological posturing, using this data in elections, using this data in many, many, many different ways. And I think people are really starting to question the foundation of data that our entire internet and definitely social media is built upon. It's interesting how much life this story has right now because Mm -hmm. so many elements of it are not new. For a couple of years, people have been reporting on the aggregation of data that Facebook in particular possesses. It is not news that Steve Bannon and the Mercers, who bankrolled most of the Trump campaign, are willing to use unscrupulous and ruthless tactics in order to advance their agenda. There doesn't seem to be anything necessarily illegal about the way that this data was used. The phrase that On the Media used in describing this, and I really recommend On the Media's coverage of this issue, they said that it's clearly legal and also clearly unethical. Mm. And that's where we find ourselves with so much of the internet. Right. I mean, look, what bothers me is I'm trying to, like, go back in time and pinpoint when I started to feel very differently about my own data, about my own privacy, and about my own participation in Facebook and other social media platforms. Because like I said, for years, I understood that I understood what I thought to be the exchange, and I was comfortable with it. I don't have anything to hide in theory. I didn't feel like I was sacrificing that much. And I loved using Facebook. Absolutely loved it. I used to tell people, I will leave the room if you talk bad about Facebook. I loved that platform. It provided me with a lot of connection. It provided me with a creative outlet. I really, really did enjoy using his product. And I mean, I understand that that product took time to build. It takes time to run. And I I get that they have to pay the bills. I wish that Mark Zuckerberg would have come to me at some point and said, I'm concerned about privacy concerns. I want to make more money off Facebook. Advertising is one way. Would you pay to use it so that I could make money another way? And I would have happily paid to use it and protect my privacy. But that's not what happened. And when I thought I was sacrificing my privacy to corporations, it was bad enough. The fact that none of us saw, I'm sure there were lots of people who did and sounded the warning bells, but, you know, just sort of the mass American public didn't see the implications, didn't think that we're impervious to election meddling, that foreign governments wouldn't see the opportunity here. I think what really bothers me and why I feel betrayed by Mark Zuckerberg and his like is that I think they did in a way see it and that they don't share their data and they don't share their privacy and they keep their cameras taped over and they don't use face. I mean, you hear you get read these articles about all these tech entrepreneurs who don't let their kids use the Internet. And that really makes me angry. That makes me feel like so we're lambs to the slaughter, but it's too you're too good. Like, why are you not sounding the warning bell? Why are you not trying to protect us if you think it's worth protecting yourself? There is inherent condescension in the model, right? Because if you accept the best intentions espoused on behalf of Mark Zuckerberg, and I don't mean to vilify him because I think there's some element of truth in it, but I think there's a whole heap of arrogance if you accept that level of truth. The idea that if you just bring people together for conversation, the world gets better is one that we espouse sometimes, Mm -hmm. that we need to be together in communities. We need to be exposed to things that we are not normally exposed to. And in that process, we will eventually come to better understand each other's humanity. Now, if Mark Zuckerberg truly believes that and that's been the motivating force of all of Facebook and other forms of technology, yet at the same time he chose not to participate in it himself, that sounds to me like I need to help those people get it together so they reach the level of wisdom that I have. And that frustrates me. Also, sometimes I just think about like kind of struck me. I was listening to The Daily or something and they said, Oh, yeah, he's 32. And I thought, oh, my God, he's 32. Look, I'm only 36. But I think about the difference between myself when I was 32. I think about the fact that he's been building this and running and steering the ship of this incredibly powerful organization as a 20-year-old. And I think, I know how we got here. Like, no offense to 20-year-olds. I'm not, like, he's just not, he doesn't have the life experience or the wisdom to see the implications of his behaviors and the implication of his platform. I always think of the story that I heard about 3D printing and they were like, 3D printing is going to change the world. It's going to make so, it's going to make so many things accessible. And somebody was basically like, well, what are the negative implications? Oh, there's not like, it's just going to be so great. And what's the first thing somebody did? They printed a gun. I understand 
the power of youth and the power of optimism, but you need somebody saying, but what if this, what if this happened? I think that there was this sense that the Internet was this great equalizing force, Mm -hmm. that power really didn't exist on the Internet. And what no one foresaw or not enough of us foresaw was that the sheer volume of information becomes powerful Mm -hmm. and no one was ever in charge of a balanced internet diet. That's what's happening with news now. No one's in charge of making sure that you have a balanced internet diet. We talked with the students at Ripon College, and we'll talk more about that on Friday, about the whole idea of lecture porn and just watching and engaging with content in an echo chamber that makes you feel really good. Well, there's nothing wrong with that, but that should be like dessert in a balanced Mm -hmm. diet, right? No one's out there making sure that that's going to happen. And I just think especially at the ages of the people who have been moving all this along, there wasn't any thoughtfulness about where that could go off the tracks. I agree with you. I worry here at 37 about putting all my thoughts online because I hope that in five years I'm so much wiser than I am now that I'm like, oh, Beth, what were you (laughs) thinking? And so I think there is something to be said for life experience and for not having enough people at the table in these discussions who were willing to say, Let's put the brakes on and consider what it is that we're building. And let's consider whether we can truly hold together the idea not just to make money, but to get wealthy Mm -hmm. at a level that is beyond the comprehension of the average person. I have no problem with people making money and living really comfortable, happy lifestyles. I have no problem with people getting insanely rich. But you cannot, I don't think, decide to create utopia alongside getting insanely rich. And if that's truly what they thought was happening, they needed someone to say, there are some conflicts here. One of my favorite podcasts is Note to Self, which is a podcast that examines the role of tech in our lives. And I'll never forget listening to an episode and thinking, your metaphor of a balanced diet is perfect. Because I remember thinking, okay... Look at the ramifications of the food industry when they were competing for, in theory, what should be a finite amount of calories we're supposed to consume a day. They fought. They lied. They are now spreading what we all know is a Western diet full of terrible health ramifications to the rest of the world. And because they were competing, because we really, they wanted to make more and more and more money because every model we have is built on growth, whether that's the best model or not. And they had to compete for that finite amount of resources or that finite amount of calories we're supposed to take in so that they could make more money. And I thought, oh my God, these platforms are built on our actual lives. They are competing for our attention. And while you can expand the amount of calories in your life, you cannot expand the amount of minutes in your day. Or at least we can try. We try to do it while we drive. We try to do it while we walk. We sleep less because we're on these social media platforms. And that to me is just such a terrifying concept that they are competing for our attention. They make products that are deliberately addictive. The Snapchat streak is built to be addictive. So you will use it and use it and use it because they make money off your consumption of these products and your data that you pin in while consuming these products. I think for so long, I talked about the internet as separate, as its own sort of thing. But the internet isn't separate and social media isn't separate. It is a product created by human beings. And as that, it carries all the problems of every other product created by human beings, which is flaws, short-term consequences, long-term consequences we don't think about, all these competition, the corrupting effects of wealth and power and greed. It's It's the same thing as everything else that we've encountered, be it smoking or the industrial age or diet. And we're living through figuring out what it is. Unlike other products, for our lifetimes, we have known that cars, while being incredibly useful, are also very dangerous. Mm-hmm. And so there are things that we have to we have to wear a seatbelt. There are annoying things that come with driving. We need to get a license. We need to stay on our side of the road. We're figuring out how to use technology to make our driving safer. We have understood that there are risks and trade-offs. The Internet is still so new 
that many of us are just coming to see that this is something that is going to have downsides because it so far has only seemed like upside. Wow, look at all these amazing things we can do. Look at all this that I can hold in the palm of my hand. How did we live before I could ask Siri for directions somewhere, you know? And and so we're just coming around to the downsides and trying to figure out how to handle those. And I really think that means that we need to have two discussions running concurrently, maybe three. What are we as individuals to do as this information comes out? What are these companies to do as this information comes out? And what are our policymakers to do? So shameless plug, I gave up Facebook for Lent, and we are going to be talking about our individual journeys and understanding of social media on The Nuance Life, which will come out tomorrow. So if you haven't checked out our new podcast, The Nuance Life, that's where we're going to talk about like really personal decisions we've made with regards to our social media and internet usage. As far as the companies, I think that Mark Zuckerberg took way, way too long to say something. And I think saying, I think he realizes to his eternal credit, to a certain extent, that he's in over his head. And saying like, maybe we do need regulation is his sort of cry for help. This is all happening at a moment, and it's circular why it's happening like this, but it's also happening at a moment when it's hard to know who to trust and what to believe. Mm. My own reaction to this Cambridge Analytica story has informed me so much about where we are because I I read all of the coverage about Cambridge Analytica, and on the one hand, I thought, you know, we're just desperate for a villain to blame for the election of Donald Trump. It's just too hard to imagine that Donald Trump could have been elected fairly. And so we're just anything that comes out that gives us hope that there was a glitch in the system feels good and we pursue it when I don't think any of this is really about Donald Trump. I think Donald Trump's campaign did a really good job using every digital tool available to them. I think that's about as far as it goes. Now, if you want to get into Mercer money and all of that, go right ahead. But that could just as easily be a Democrat as a Republican. I mean, I, I really don't think that this is about the politics of that election, except that it captures our attention because it's so comforting that maybe this is why Trump was elected. On the other hand, when I listen to people from Silicon Valley question the power of Cambridge Analytica's data, because there are lots of people who've given interviews who said they're giving themselves an awful lot of credit. Mm -hmm. Yes, you have all of this data, but the idea that you can micro-target so specifically that it motivates someone to make a voting choice or a fundraising choice, that's a stretch. I listen to them and think, yeah, but you're motivated to tell me that's a stretch because you need this to all continue. And so I'm having trouble trusting any source completely about this story. When I think about what you and I have learned about Facebook as an advertising tool through the podcast, I am more inclined to accept some of what's coming out of Silicon Valley. We're obviously a very small sample size, but we've talked before about how Facebook advertising doesn't really convert to new listeners. We can buy an ad on Facebook to make sure that all of the people who follow our page see it because frustratingly, those algorithms make it difficult for what we post to come up constantly in people's news feeds. But to get someone to take a step beyond clicking on Facebook is tricky, and it requires an enormous volume of information. So thinking about taking the data from someone's which Disney princess are you quiz and building a complex psychological profile on that person such that you can manipulate them into voting for someone they otherwise wouldn't have, that seems like a leap. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets look just like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra-concentrated, liquidless laundry detergent. It's the best of all worlds. Earth Breeze is tough on stains and odors while being kind to the planet and your skin, so it's good for sensitive skin. It reduces plastic waste. All of these things are true and amazing, but let's get to the heart of it. Y'all know I have a laundry system. You know it revolves around training children as young as possible to do their own laundry. Earth Breeze sheets feels like they were invented for this. 
because littles maybe sometimes struggle with those big, heavy jugs. Or maybe you worry about the pods, but here we go. Here we go, y'all. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets. It's like the perfect solution. A child as young as two can handle these sheets. And even with toddlers, like you can get them involved. And this is a way to get them helping with laundry even before they could do it themselves. Ugh, gotta love it so much. Right now, our listeners can receive 40% off Earth Breeze just by going to earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. That's earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit to cut out single-use plastic in your laundry room and claim 40% off your subscription. earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. We do quite a bit of hosting here at the Silvers household, and I think there is nothing that completes a table for dinner. Like a beautiful loaf of bread and wild grain has made that so simple because they send gorgeous loaves of sourdough bread. Lots of spins on the ingredients, but always just this fantastic, high quality, easy to bake in 25 minutes or less from frozen bread that turns out perfectly every single time. I also have to tell you about the free croissants for life that come with your wild grain orders. And those croissants make the morning, your brunch, maybe your late night snack, flaky and like you're sitting in a French cafe and they're just perfect every single time. That's what I love about Wild Grain. It's easy, it's consistent, it's fully customizable. It is the first ever Bake From Frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. For a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. You heard me, free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit, or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. I don't know. I'm more easily convinced, mainly just because Donald Trump didn't win by that much in that many places in order to secure the presidency because of our glorious electoral college process. and. For better or for worse, I think that it's easy as a political animal to exist in a space where you think people are so ingrained in their political beliefs, and many, 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 many Americans are. But in presidential elections, there is this broad middle who, mind-blowingly as it might be to the rest of us, don't decide until the last minute and do change their minds. And a lot of people voted for Barack Obama and then voted for Donald Trump, and the only explanation that I can think for that is that they were making their minds at the last minute. They were making their minds on sort of a scattering of information. And most of our brains are monkey brains and uh, respond to certain psychological levers and tools. And I'm not sure that I'm not saying that I think that the Trump campaign took Cambridge Analytica's data and was like, yep, I pulled this lever in this county. But I just think the combination of whatever they were able to do through this data, I'm not convinced that Russia wasn't involved in the usage of this data. And they were definitely well-versed in understanding where to push buttons in certain parts of the country in order to get the outcome that they wanted. I, I don't know. I don't disagree with any of what you just said. What I think, too, is that I I am sympathetic to the argument, well, first it was James Comey, and then it was Russia, and now it's Facebook. There is always a search. And I, and I have this search, too. I'm susceptible to this because I still struggle with how did we end up electing Donald Trump for many reasons. 
So I think that there there is a difficulty embracing this on a bipartisan basis. And my point is, this is a bipartisan issue. And it's not just a political issue. This is a life and culture issue. Mm-hmm. This is a who do we want to be and what kind of society do we want to live in issue. And the other thing that you just said that I think is so important is at the same time as we're coming to understand what these tools are and what they are capable of, We're also learning so much more about our brains and how Mm -hmm. our brains respond to them. And it's almost like our brains are part of this vast network in ways that we're not fully conscious of. And we've got to get conscious of that. I feel like that's part of the answer. There's a policy section of this. There's a company section of it. And there is that personal section. And I think part of the personal section is to be much more aware of the fact that when I take a quiz about my ideal city to live in, I'm telling lots of people all kinds of things about what they might be able to sell me in terms of both products and ideas. So then moving on to what we think the policy implication could be, I read several articles that used this metaphor, one of which was a Bloomberg piece called Why We Need a Digital Protection Agency. And this metaphor sort of as Social media, thinking about social media and then an internet with the terms of like the Environmental Protection Agency and pollution really appealed to me. So from this article, the author said the activist and internet entrepreneur Majesi Siglowski once described big data as a bunch of radioactive toxic sludge that we don't know how to handle. Maybe we should think about Google and Facebook as the new polluters. Their imperative is to grow. They create jobs. They pay taxes, sort of. In the meantime, they're dumping trillions of units of toxic brain poison into our public thinking reservoir. Then they mop it up with Wikipedia or send out a message that reads, we take your privacy seriously. And so there's several people saying that we need basically an EPA for regulating our privacy and our data through the internet because otherwise it's a free-for-all and we're getting all sorts of nasty stuff dumped in the rivers of our mind. I think realistically the only way to regulate would be through an agency like that because if we just pass some kind of sweeping like Facebook legislation, it will be obsolete in months, Mm -hmm. if not days. So I do kind of like the EPA analogy, and I like the idea of recognizing that there is a cost to having these tools, just like there is a cost to our consumer products. And sometimes that cost is too high, and we have to go in and figure out how to bring things back into balance. I don't know who would staff this or what the objectives would be or how we could bring a sense of ethics to that regulatory framework. I don't have a better idea either. But we got to start doing something. I mean, the European Union has passed several regulations that will come on board in May. I think we can watch them and see how successful their regulation is. We didn't mention this, but they're, you know, embroiled in their own sort of Facebook scandals, particularly in Britain, where there's seems to be some implication that the vote leave Contingency in the Brexit vote was involved in Cambridge Analytica, perhaps taking sort of illegal donations that were funneled into the company and the emotions of the British public were manipulated in much the same way to get a Brexit vote. And I think we're all across the globe trying to deal with this and think through this. And we got to start trying something, though, that's for sure. A point that On the Media made, too, is that because social media connects us so tightly, regulations from the EU will impact the American experience of Facebook, perhaps even more than American regulation would affect Facebook, because American users of Facebook are a very, very small percentage of Facebook's overall business. Interesting. The number of people on Facebook is the population of China plus America times two. Dang. So we are a very minor component of Facebook. And the other thing to think about is that we are not Facebook's growth opportunity. Right. They're about its saturation in America. They're really about its saturation worldwide, except for developing nations. So unless Facebook decided to change its entire business model and monetize via individual subscriptions, and I can't imagine that the opportunity there is anywhere near as great as the opportunity that it's realizing today. I'm certain they thought through that possibility. I don't think it escaped anyone to say, Sarah and Beth, would you like to pay for your Facebook account? (laughs) You know, I'm sure that they just decided that that was a much smaller opportunity than the one they're pursuing right now. 
it is going to be really hard for any kind of grassroots movement to make a dent in Facebook. So we'll see. I mean, I think hopefully Facebook will adjust so much to the EU regulations that we'll see some positive benefits of that even if American lawmakers don't do much about this. I have no doubt that this is a conversation will continue. I have lots of thoughts through my personal experience. Like I said, that will be shared on The Nuanced Life, and we will continue to follow the Cambridge Analytica story. I don't think we've heard the end of it and the role of Facebook and social media in our consumption of news and our political dialogue. What's on your mind outside of politics, Sarah? I am working my way through launching Rockets, which is a Rob Bell program on parenting, and I'm just loving it. It's so good. It's like his observations about parenting. There are 17, and you can pay whatever you want to get access to it, which I think is really cool. And his first one I love so much, it's your primary responsibility as a parent is to enjoy your child. Like that this idea that they know whether they bring joy to us or whether we feel like they're a burden and frustrating and stressful. And so... Not in the pressure way, like, enjoy your child, but just like you brought them here for a reason. It was to express either, you know, something you wanted to see in the world, the love between you and your partner, whatever the case may be. And just to keep that in mind, it's just, it was really beautiful. I cried a lot. I'm really enjoying it. So I'm working my way through the rest of those now. Also, my kitchen's about to be demoed. And I'll be putting that up on Patreon for all of y'all following along with Fixer Up Paducah Edition. So that starts this week and it's kind of stressful, but it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. I wanted to tell people, to give people a little preview of our bonus episode for March coming up. I just finished Waco, Paramount's series about what happened at Mount Carmel in Waco, Texas. I am old enough to remember this going on in the news and being something that my parents were paying attention to. I have some grasp on the details. I remembered names, but I did not really understand what happened there. And I also want to mention that this is why, as good as this was, and it was excellent, this is why I watch junk food television, because I've not been able to sleep since I watched it. (laughs) You know, when I watch, like, Top Chef and Project Runway, I don't fall asleep worried about under-seasoned tartare or a red carpet look that wasn't fashion-forward enough. But, like, I am haunted by the images from this series. And I have so many thoughts about how relevant what we learned is today. And not just today, but what happened at Waco, I think, is a really important, almost parable Mm. for how we see each other and how we see our government. So I'm really excited for us to record our bonus episode for patrons because there's a lot in this mini series to talk about. It's so good. Side note on your TV consumption, I need help from our audience. Taylor Kitsch is the star of this mini series is David Koresh. I am trying to convince Beth that Friday Night Lights is worth her time and Taylor Kitsch's Tim Riggins is the best thing that's ever happened to television. So help me out, people. Send Beth some messages so, to tell her see, to watch Friday Night Lights. Gonna- I think this could backfire, Sarah. Because <laughs> I mentioned to Sarah that so she does this Instagram book review and then says, I'm going to make Beth read this book. And I said, I just want to tell you, and I know this doesn't sound like my personality, but when I hear I'm going to make Beth do this, there's this little voice inside my brain that goes, we'll see. And then there's like a more Darth Vader kind of voice that comes into my brain that's like, you will not read it and you will definitely not like it. (laughs) I just have like a little bit of rebellion about things like this. (laughs) I should also say that along the lines of junk food television, we have started watching Nailed It at my house. Have you heard about Nailed It? I have not heard of Nailed It. Tell me more. It's a baking show on Netflix, but it's like they give these completely amateur bakers like two hours to create beautiful pinterest worthy cakes and other confectionaries it's like a pinterest fail television show basically and it's hilarious the host is a delight Jacques torres is on there which i really enjoy and we watch it with the kids it's been so much fun that makes me want to eat all the cake but it's really fun so if you are looking for lighter less waco ish although everyone should watch friday night lights television consumption nailed it highly recommend it are they like mean to the people? No. Or is it is just everybody in on the joke? Everybody's just like having fun. TV. No, they're not being okay. mean. There's nothing on the line here. It's just people being like, I want to come on a TV show. They give $10,000 at the end of the show. Yeah, it's good times. Okay, good. Because I, I really don't like mean stuff. That's part of why I like the shows like Top Chef and Project Runway. I like to see people who are super talented in their lane doing their thing. All right, perfect. 
Well, thank you for joining us for another episode. As Sarah mentioned, we will be on the Nuance Live talking more about social media this week. We'll be back here on Friday with excerpts from our time at Ripon College plus the week's news. We have several great interviews coming up. Thank you all so much for your Patreon support. And until next time, keep it nuanced, y'all. To support Pantsuit Politics, please visit patreon.com forward slash pantsuitpolitics or rate and review the podcast in the Apple Podcast Player. Thank you to our executive producers, Nicholas, Chad, Tracy, George, and Sabrina. You can find us on Twitter at Pantsuit Politics or Facebook and Instagram at Pantsuit Politics. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. You can also hear his work and get more nuance by checking out our podcast on family, relationships, and values, The Nuanced Life.